Welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. We're here. We're here. And this week, our topic is, oh my God, we have a guest. She is the <laughs> multimodal as fuck author of numerous books of poetry and fiction, most recently the short story collection, Collective Gravities, a book I cannot recommend highly enough. She is the co-editor-in-chief of the literary journal Cotton Xenomorph. She is the great Chloe N. Clark. Chloe, welcome. Thank you so much. So you do a lot of stuff, um, uh, but this week it's, you know, it's October, so we are talking about spooky things, and um, you do a lot of work in monster theory. So we're going we're to talk about some monsters, and uh, first off, I wanted to channel my inner camp counselor and do an icebreaker. So let's go around the room. What's a monster you secretly wouldn't mind being turned into? Chloe, you can go first. Um, so I think that, uh, the monster that I wouldn't mind being turned into, uh, as much as it hurts me to not say Chupacabra, the goat sucking pushes me away. Um, (laughs) so I would say the Loch Ness monster because it's mysterious. Everyone loves the Loch Ness monster. You don't have to do a lot. So I feel like that's a good (laughs) one. I love, love the caveat. (laughs) You don't have to do a lot. (laughs) Loch Ness Monster, the chillest of all the monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Nessie is great. We do all love Nessie. Um, Everyone just wants to see Nessie. Nobody wants to hurt Nessie. Yeah. I think it's a strong choice. Solid, solid choice. It's it's Um, a solid choice. And you know what? As opposed to... uh, uh, krakens or sea monsters. Uh, you don't get salt in your eyes when you're Nessie. Uh, That's true. Just nice, warm lake water. <laughs> is, is it warm lake water in Scotland? Uh, cool lake water. <laughs> Famously warm Scotland. <laughs> mm. I, I, yeah, I, I, have no, I have no idea about the lake temperature in Scotland. <laughs> I've never gone to Scotland for the explicit purpose of going swimming. Um, Bob, what about you? Um, As the least spooky person here, uh, this is a difficult question, but um, my my instinct uh, is to turn into a monster um, that is familiar, um, that would not change my life experience too much. Uh, So uh, Frankenstein's monster it is, because... (laughs) Uh, as much as uh, people were scared of him and didn't want to hang out, um, which I can a little bit relate to, not too much. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for me, the, the center of that book uh, is, is when he's watching uh, Felix and Safi um, and he like learns what love is and he really desires that um, because that all rings very, very true to me. Um, <laughs> also extremely on brand for Bob to pick a monster that reads poetry the way you framed it i was like in my head it's like cookie monster but he's like i want poems and he's just eating poems. <laughs> give me that poetry monster <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, it is a werewolf. Um, it just seems like the easiest monster to be. 
Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. We already established Nessie gets to chill. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Nessie gets to chill. Well, I guess what I'm saying is I could still live in my house. I just had to, like, build a steel cage in my garage, and then once a month I just, like, sleep there. You know? It's fine. It's not a big deal. I don't know how to build a steel cage, but, like, YouTube exists, so it's fine. <laughs> you could even say once a month you'd have to quarantine. It wouldn't be hard. <laughs> It would be, wouldn't be hard anymore. Um, but of, of course, the most important attribute of uh, a werewolf uh, is: Would you be a teen wolf and a teen wolf who can dunk? If I have to get bitten and scratched uh, without the benefit of um, uh, learning to dunk, uh, or, or, or or the benefit of getting a jumping ability so that I could dunk, uh, then no, it's not worth it. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So, full disclosure, I took an online workshop taught by Chloe in July about monster theory. And, Chloe, you said something in the intro email, um, and that was one of those things where um, I'd never noticed it before, but it felt obvious, like, as soon as I heard it phrased this way, and I kind of started seeing it everywhere. Um, to paraphrase from your syllabus, monsters are often used to control, instill, and reinforce societal and cultural power constructs. Um, basically this idea that, uh, instead of monster stories as y'all got to be scared of this monster, your thinking seems to be this monster needs to be scared of society, which I find fascinating. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So if we look at monsters throughout time, um, going back to like Greek mythology or something in Medusa, we can see this at play. So Medusa is a woman who's turned monstrous, not because of her own actions, but something forced onto her. And then she doesn't do anything. She kind of stays away from society, but people want to hunt her down and kill her just because she's a monster. And we see that throughout all of our kind of monster stories is often it's something that um, happened without the control of the monster. They didn't do this to themselves or turn themselves into a monster. And we see society over and over wanting to harm them in some way, wanting to kind of um, show that there is something other than us. And so we have to kill them. And I think that's fascinating and also kind of important to keep in mind. I like um, that example of, of Medusa because like as much as this is a, a familiar character, um, even contemporarily, um, I, I think that the like, it, like it to me it represents something about monsters and that like we know like what she does and why she's a monster, but like so much of the backstory is not part of the popular conception of Medusa. Um, I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh yeah, I do remember that, but it's like mm -hmm. monster stuff up front, um, you know that it just that lack of one the lack of understanding <laughs> really important <laughs> uh uh and like almost uh i had another word there it's disappeared um <laughs> uh but that that for me is, is a helpful example um because really yeah reflective of the way of that like this person is perceived as a monster um because in a lot in at least some part because of what's left out of the story right mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And uh Bob, you were talking a little bit before we got on mic about um like how popular images of monsters can sort of calcify in our heads. So yeah, you don't think about the fact that 
Medusa's viewed as a monster because of all the stuff that's done to her. You just think like, oh, she's she turns people into stone. And, right. Uh, yeah. Um, and who hasn't turned someone into stone by giving them a really mean look? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Who's amongst us? <laughs> um, and so part of what also is kind of there is um, the relationship between a monster and their like local and temporal context, uh, you know, of, of what is a monster to um, one culture or one group of people or one part of the world or one period of time. Um, you know, it, it's in relationship to those people. Um, so I always want to know when I'm talking to a monster expert, um, who's a, a monster deep cut that we might not know about or that like we should be talking about more? So um, there's so many monsters from around the world that I think are really interesting and fascinating. Um, but one that I think has been depicted in certain ways um, in the media that doesn't give a good understanding of the story necessarily is the Wendigo. Um, so something that comes from Native American mythos and is, has a lot of different depictions depending on which kind of area of peoples we're looking at, where sometimes uh, it's a human who's turned because they did X thing, or sometimes it's kind of representative of nature itself and what we need to fear there, or how we interact with it. And I think that's true of a lot of monsters is um, the way that they shift because of region or because of cultural beliefs that are associated with them when they kind of spring into being. So I think that's one that I find really interesting to look at how each different area views it in a different way and what that might represent for that culture. For sure. Oh man, the, your point about um, sometimes it's a, like a, the Wendigo, sometimes it's like a, a human that you need to be scared of. Sometimes it's a, um, a phenomenon of nature that you need to be scared of is uh, really fascinating to think about in terms of like just different regions of a giant country like America. Like, you know, there are some places in this country where the weather is very scary. And mm -hmm. then there are some places in this country where, uh, I, well, okay. There's some places in this country where the weather is very scary, but then there's some, you know, times when you have to be scared of other humans and kind of stuff like that. And mm -hmm. the fact that that monster can, uh, morph and change to accommodate both of those different fears is uh, is really cool to think about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so piggybacking off of Bob's question a little bit, um, I just watched the uh, the new Invisible Man film with Elizabeth Moss, where they they flipped a monster who I'm pretty uninterested in, the Invisible Man, uh, kind of on its head, um, and instead of just being like a mean old British scientist who developed a potion to make himself be meaner um, <laughs> and uh, um, made it about abusive relationship. They made it entirely from the victim's perspective, uh, made it a story about stalking and um, really gave a voice to the uh, victim of the monster rather than the monster, which I thought was really interesting. So if you had, uh, without um, uh, divulging any secrets about any upcoming work you might have, uh, what would be a monster that you'd want to, uh, to uh, kind of, do a flip on its head with. Um, so I, I, I want to do that with every monster always, but the one that I always come back to is odd people. Um, I've always like, even as a child, those are the ones that most frightened me when I saw them depicted in movies. And I think uh, there's a lot of fertile ground there to kind of think about 
the ways that um, pod purpose can represent how we view one another and even how we view ourselves and our relationships and what we can know or can't know about another person. Pod people is such a good phrase. <laughs> it's a good phrase. Just like it's a great sound. I, then you know it's poet talk. <laughs> I had not ta- thought about pod people until until your class, and yeah, they are they are pretty terrifying. But yes, <laughs> solid alliteration there. <laughs> uh, Bob, do you want to bring it back to form? Um, <laughs> talk, talk about talk about poetic mechanics and alliteration. Oh, I do. I, do. I was like, wait, I'm not sure if you're being serious. Or not. <laughs> uh, because pod people with their inability to kind of shape shift and to become, uh, you know, other people uh, or to take that form. Uh, they might right. Be, they depend on alliteration. Yeah. They might they be some really excellent formalists right there. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a good one to piggyback off of. It's what kind no. of... No one sticks to rhyme and meter like pod people. <laughs> what kind of monster would make the best poet? Ooh. You said that in jest, but now I want to take it seriously. What yeah, kind of monster I would do. make the best poet? I mean, probably Frankenstein's monster, I guess. <laughs> Read the most poetry. <laughs> I mean, but going back to Nessie, just like chilling in a lake, like sometimes showing up and looking at people otherwise just chilling yeah well anyone who's immortal like dracula or uh 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 i guess nessie's been around for a long time anyone who's like had a longer lifespan has had longer to read and practice their craft so yeah but like can you be a good poet if you're not afraid of death (laughs) (laughs) sorry i just don't believe that every poet is gonna be a good poet Oh my god. There are no good immortal poets. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. <laughs> Can you be good poet if you're not afraid of death? Oh my god. Okay, all right. I, I can't talk anymore. God damn it. All right. Chloe, do you have a poem you want to read? This is this is this is what happens every week is we 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 Bob and I just totally break down and then we pivot to poetry. So. <laughs> do you have a poem you'd like to read? Um, I will read a poem uh, that the only monster is, I guess, aging and death. So it goes along with this theory that you have to be afraid of death to be a good poet. Maybe um, this poem is called "Ball Don't Lie." It originally appeared in Hobart, and it features my absolute favorite basketball player and personal hero, Rashid Wallace. Ball don't lie. In my dream last night, basketball was on, and Sheed was a three-point machine, shooting half-court shots that were nothing but net. Last year, I told my boyfriend to watch his step on ice, and when did I get so protective, so quick to keep everyone safe around me? Sheed was never a three-point machine, but he hit when he needed to. Sheed was defense and attitude and tattoos of the sun. On the phone, I ask a friend if her husband is doing better, if his dreams have gotten less filled with terror. She tells me some nights are better than others, and I think that aging is often like that. We take our better where we find it. When Sheed was a Celtic and in the playoffs that final year, I saw him clutch his back, the pain clear on his face, and I thought, someday I will understand this loss. Yeah. 
great poem. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and, and in, you go ahead, Bob. I was just gonna say, in classic, uh, uh, what we appreciate about basketball poem poems that it's like it's about basketball, but it's about so much more. Yeah, my back is sore just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the um, the fact that basketball players just have to face their mortality like so much earlier than the rest of us. Like Rashid <laughs> Wallace is only like eight years older than us, and. <laughs> I just recently got passable in my craft, and I'm 32. <laughs> so based on this theory, basketball players should be excellent poets because they have to face their mortality at such a young age. You would think, yeah. <laughs> I swear there's a basketball player who's a poet. Like a like an NBA player who's turned poet. I'm not going to be able to think of it. but It's got to be. Um, yeah. I mean, that's my, my weekly shout-out to former WNBA player Natalie Diaz. Uh, yeah. who was uh, shortlisted for the National Book Award. Um, oh, that's that right, yeah. That book. Um, but uh, I'm going to re- repeat the question, even though it still feels ridiculous. Um, Chloe, <laughs> you are one of the most productive writers I can think of, and uh, as someone who probably could be doing more writing right now, I want to know your secret. Um, so for me, it's that I spend too much time thinking about writing, um, because I like do nothing else as an English teacher. I feel like at least in my career, I can also think about writing too much. Um, so I think a lot of it is that I'm constantly thinking about writing. I'm constantly living in the world of the writing. When I talk about my process, I often mention that it's a very like obsessive process to sometimes to its detriment um when i'm thinking a poem i'll usually go through it in my head like dozens of times before i put it down on the page when i'm thinking through a story i'm a visual uh thinker so usually i have everything kind of like visually working there before i'm writing it um and this means that a lot of times i'll be staring at the wall for an hour and people will walk past and be kind of confused by this uh but it's because i'm i have all of these thoughts going through my head so I think a lot of times my prolificness um, hides the fact that I, I spend too much time thinking about these things and doing them versus other things that maybe I should be doing. <laughs> so, it's a little, little curse and a blessing all at once. <laughs> well, you at least, uh, you at least finish things, which uh, I'm not good at personally. <laughs> I would say it's, it's the, on the, on the blessing side, it's the, that's, that's, to me, really interesting and, and, and remarkable, that idea of like working through a poem in your head multiple times, um, which on one level I relate to, um, but the getting it down on the page sometimes is the hard part. Um, and, and that's really interesting to, for me to hear, I, I, that idea of you can go through that whole poem before getting on the page. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> this actually reminds me, um, so, okay, so you talk about being a, a, a visual thinker, uh, especially when it comes to your fiction. Um, I'm kind of an obsessive outliner and Bob apparently can't visualize anything in his head. Nope. Um, so do you, uh, do you outline or is it all just like a constant background noise of like images in the back of your brain kind of thing? And then it just comes out on the page. Uh, it's mostly just a background, uh, kind of constant run through of what it is. And then it comes on the page. I can't outline. I find that if I start outlining, I start losing the visual in my head. Uh, wow. There's a reason I 
it has taken me like 15 years to write a novel. (laughs) 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 Holding it all in there. So unfortunately I can't outline. I would love to be able to, um, but it just like is very antithetical to what my brain works as. Right. Interesting. Oh man. So um, this might, yeah, it's either going to be like a clear answer or not, but like, do you think that in your head, how, how different in your head is that process? I guess just this comes from the place of, for me, uh, the, 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 the hearing part of it is so much more important for me for a poem than the, the visual. Again, I mean, I had a deficiency here because it's hard for me to visualize things. Um, but do you think that in your head process looks or feels very different from fiction to poetry? somewhat I they're both very visual mediums for me for poetry I obviously want sound to be a very important thing um I find sound very difficult uh like I sing and am a singer but that's all kind of self-trained self-taught and um so that's one kind of sound but with poetry like I'm blind to meter basically like I've I can't hear it same so it's like, that's a very hard thing. Um, so I try to incorporate sound, but it's still like, it has to start out of a visual. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times like visuals make a sound to me on a page. So like, mm-hmm. am I seeing it in a way that makes sound to me? Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. I <laughs> oh, mean, no, that makes total sense. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> it kind of makes sense, but it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I I am so uninterested in people who say they have synesthesia or whatever, but I definitely have um like when I'm playing guitar, I hear different keys as different colors. Um so what you just said really scans oh. for me. Like uh um like the key of C is red to me for 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 example. Um and so that's interesting that you get that with poetry. Man, I'm a little jealous. That's awesome. <laughs> Good, uh, I'm going to uh, I have to find my copy of this book, but I, I got a, I got a like six page, and it's not even like a full size book. Like six pages chapters from from this book that will like, I just, I want the entire world to like <laughs> let themselves learn meter. It's totally doable. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a slight mission with that of being like, I promise it's not that hard. And like I I don't know. I guess when I hear something like that. Um, because like I, I have I have read your poems, you you have an awareness of sound. You do you do exciting stuff with sound. Um, <laughs> uh, I just so much more to me. I guess yeah. Like when I think of like writing in my head, like and it being sonic, it's like literally just that. Like oh, these words sound cool together <laughs> is enough to get going. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. I. I think both of you know more meter than you think you do. That's what I'm going to say. I do read a lot of uh, hunches and bunches these days. So, <laughs> All right. So, um, Chloe, you kind of jumped on my last question a little bit, but uh, I was going to say Bob and I should clear out to the weak side and uh, uh, let you uh, run a post up talking about Rashid Wallace. But... Um, since you already talked about Rashid Wallace for our <laughs> basketball question this week, um, if you had to do a, uh, Oh, I should also say when you read your poem, I was reminded that, uh, there's a joke 
people like to make about old sheet about how he didn't like to cross either three point lines. And your poem starts out with uh, <laughs> him raining half court shots, which means he doesn't even have to cross half court. So <laughs> I love it. That's a very, very it's nice like tribute to him. <laughs> <laughs> but so the question um, is, if you had to do a top three ranking of his catchphrases, what would your top three ranking of his catchphrases be? Oh, well, I think, I feel like ball don't lie has to be number one. I mean, I literally named the poem that. Um, <laughs> so number one is ball don't lie. Hmm. I feel like one that's not actually a catchphrase, but it's like a catch visual is I was really entranced with as a child and watching Sheed when that he'd throw towels at people like uh, Ravita Sabonis, <laughs> that he'd throw a towel at him in the locker room when he was angry. So I feel like that can go as like a catch catch movement, maybe. Okay. Um, Fair enough. A, a catch gif. A million percent. <laughs> like, if you had not said it, I would not have remembered that. But the visual, right, oh, right away. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then maybe just like I'm very fond of the gif of him when he goes simplicity, and it's just like I use that as a reaction gif a lot. So I feel like Baldo my simplicity and throwing towels at people when he's angry. <laughs> Fair enough. Solid list. Solid list. I will quibble with the omission of both teams played hard, my man. Both teams played hard, but <laughs> solid list. <laughs> um, do you like like? Do you remember like when your earliest like coming to love sheet was? So I don't actually remember my age. I know it was in the nineties at some point. Um, and it was the Portland years where, so Sabonis was on there and Damon Sudemeyer. So those kind of years are the ones that are really stuck in my head um, with sheet. And then my my favorite sheet team though is the Pistons because I also love Tayshawn Prince and Rip Hamilton. So that kind of like rounded out the ultimate team for me. Nice. So Chloe and Clark monsters and defense. Like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's it. <laughs> and monsters on defense. <laughs> yeah. That's a sign off. <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for so much for being our, our very first guest on this podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Um, I love the podcast, so this was great. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you. Um, yeah. Our music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our artwork is done by A.M. Strickland. We will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>